Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Sermon Archive. Today's sermon, for the fifth Sunday after Trinity, is preached by Mr. Matt Johnson. If you have questions about today's sermon, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website, faithlutheran-aflc.org. Now let's join in and hear what God has to say to us today. Good morning again. Uh, Please rise and I will uh, read our text, which is Mark 2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Please be seated. Not all of us watch football, but bear with me and answer the following question. Of the following two people, whose team would you rather be on? Joe Burrow, quarterback, in the 2022 season, 4,475 yards, 35 touchdowns, 12 interceptions, passer rating of 100.8. Keep in mind, passer rating of over 100 is considered quite good. Or your second person, Chad Henney. Two attempted throws all year. No completions, no yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. Passer rating of 3.5. It's not a trick question. Whose team would you want to be on? The guy that passed 35 touchdowns, which if football isn't your thing, that's really good or the guy that passed twice and no one caught it? Which team? Do you have your mental choice? Okay, so if you picked Joe Burrow, you joined the Cincinnati Bengals, and you had a good season, and you lost the AFC Championship game to the Chiefs. That championship game at the end of the year decides who goes to the Super Bowl. You lost that game. And if you picked Chad Henney, you joined the Kansas City Chiefs, and you won the Super Bowl. Chad Henney's the backup. And if your team had Patrick Mahomes on it, you wouldn't play Chad Henney either, bless his heart. Uh, So that's enough of footballs. The statistics can look really impressive. Often you can look at them and determine who even won the game, though not always. But in truth, they're not remotely important. What is important is that the game was won and not lost. That's all that matters. As one commentator put it, winning solves everything. He was referring to teams with personnel or emotion problems, attitude problems. Winning solves everything. 
I sat at the computer and stared at a blank screen for longer than I would like to admit regarding how I would start this sermon, and at length, I decided I should just open up with my fixation in this passage. It struck me for the first time only a few months ago, Jesus has been called many things, and one of the big ones is that he was a healer. Jesus heals people all over the Gospels. He becomes quite well known for it, sickness and paralysis and cripples and deformities and all of the above. Have you ever asked yourself why? I can hear your answer. No, Matt, I haven't, because that's a stupid question. You're probably right, but consider, why would Jesus heal? There's a few easy answers. It would brings glory to God, right? It helps the quality of life and people God cares about. It's just a good thing to do. How could it not be? But all those answers are on the surface level and just, just a little too easy. I did a preliminary, not in-depth, perusal of the Gospels, just turn in pages, looking for the circumstances surrounding the records of healing. And guess what the Gospels appear to tell us? Most of the healings were not from Jesus' own initiation. They were not his idea. There are exceptions to this. A handful of times when he did initiate, for the most part. Uh, far more often, the healing takes place because Jesus is approached by someone who needs him. Heal my son, heal my daughter, cure my leprosy, I want to see again. Being the good and gracious man he was, he would heal such people, often. But what did it bring him? I mean, personally, in his everyday life. It takes valuable time. It attracts unwanted attention from the authorities, jealousies, healing on the Sabbath, and the attacks that come from that. And in a sense, in a sense, brings him unwanted attention from the crowd which I'll get back to. Primarily, what healing brought was distraction from his true mission. We have an interesting piece of information right off the bat in verse 1, which feeds into our narrative better to understand this narrative. Uh, he is returned home to Capernaum. In order to return somewhere, one has to leave. It's implied toward the previous chapter, the end of chapter 1, that Jesus' healing fame has begun to attract so many people they're beginning to get in the way. 145 notes he couldn't even openly enter the city anymore. Perhaps this is why we see him telling healed people not to say anything to anyone. And presumably, this is why we see him returning, because he left to get away. The crowds are getting in his way. Side note on Capernaum. Jesus was from Nazareth, which I'm sure you know. That's his hometown, but Luke 4 tells us that Nazareth has rejected him after he presented himself to them in his early ministry. Not only have they rejected him, they tried to throw him off a cliff. So he's made something of a home base in Capernaum instead. This makes good basic sense. Capernaum's not some quiet little backwater. It's a center of economy and trade. A major trade road runs through it. There's an imperial garrison there. It's home to a large fishing industry, and archaeology tells us there was uh, agricultural man manufacturing going on. It's a good strategic place to call home. It's also very pretty, by the way. I've been there. You've got big hills and the lake. It's, it's lovely. Uh, a little later in chapter 6, Mark tells us something important about Jesus' healing people. It mentions that due to the unbelief in Nazareth, Jesus could do no mighty work there, quote-unquote, no mighty work there except 
that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Why bring this part up? It sounds like healing is secondary, or the minimum of what Jesus can do when he's involved. If healing isn't first among priorities, what is Jesus's priority? What's he already engaged in doing before he got interrupted? Verse 2 tells us, preaching the word. Multiple places throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus entered the synagogue in this city or that town and preached there or taught there. His own calling in Luke 4 emphasizes the gospel and preaching. We heard earlier today in the reading from Isaiah that God, what God says about his word going out. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. and It will accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Sounds like a priority, does it not? The next few verses, we have the arrival of the paralytic brought by friends. It's an interesting intricacy of the text that this man could not even approach Jesus on his own accord, and also that he's brought in by nameless bearers. We don't know the names of the men who brought him, presumably men. This is worth mentioning on its own, and I hope, I hope you don't mind the following one-paragraph detour, because I thought it was so neat when it was pointed out to me. If you want to have some real fun in your personal Bible study, when you're reading, pay attention to the nameless people that bring another character to the Christ figure. Genesis 24. In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant Eleazar journeyed to Haran and brought Rebekah back for Isaac. You remember that? We know it's Eleazar from earlier in the text. But in the text, as soon as he leaves on this mission of his, he's only referred to as the servant. It's not Eleazar anymore, it's simply the servant. The man who pointed this out to me was of the opinion that this detail in the text is emblematic of the Holy Spirit at work behind the scene. And the servant brings a Gentile bride to the Christ figure, Isaac. The same principle occurs in Ruth. Have some fun and see if you can, you can find that for yourself but I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Anyway, back to our text. The paralytic doesn't strike me as a Gentile bride, I'm not saying that, but it's still interesting the nameless people are the catalyst for the restoration that occurs to, to, for him. Additionally, in verse 5, Jesus himself also includes them, them in the action when he saw their faith. I'm not qualified enough as a theologian to develop that any, any further than that, but I'm just saying there's a lot going on there. Uh, just in that detail, and no detail is trivial in, in Scripture. Anyway, let's continue. Have you ever looked at someone else's misfortune and wondered what they did to deserve it? Or just seen something happen to a well-known figure and declared in your head that they deserved it? Hopefully that's not a typical thing you do. But it's what first-century Jews often would do. In John 9, the disciples walk past a man born blind and ask Jesus what the guy did wrong that this happened to him, or what his parents did wrong. Can you imagine sitting there crippled or blind or down on your luck in some physical way and hearing some jerk nearby ask someone that? Can, can you imagine that? Perhaps they were asking because they heard Jesus back in chapter 5 tell someone to, quote, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. To the Jewish mind, 
the concept itself was biblical. In Exodus 23:25, Moses says God will take away sickness from the midst of you in relation to obedience. Deuteronomy 7:15 repeats the concept. And later in Deuteronomy 28, 60, and 61, he promises that rejection of God's law will result not only in sicknesses that are familiar from Egypt, but also a legion of other afflictions not listed in the book of the law. Even in our psalm today, 107.17 says affliction can come out of iniquity. Though the word affliction there is not necessarily referring to physical sickness. Uh, this is similar principle is my point. Disobedience can lead to hard times. And that the audience of Jesus' day thought this way is an important concept to learn because Jesus' actions are going to directly relate to this attitude. So hold on to that and set it aside for later. We'll return to it. In the meanwhile, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Strange thing to say, don't you think? To a man who's clearly come to be healed and not forgiven. Can you imagine his four friends carrying him home, still paralyzed, and someone saying, well, I'm glad that trip we just made worked out so well. At least they were cool about the roof. This is maybe the last thing anyone was expecting him to say. And in our reading, not in this scripture necessarily, but overall in our, in our reading of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, we often take shots at the scribes and Pharisees, the religious elite of the day. They're always trying to get Jesus, and he's always outsmarting them. But we forget how useful they can be. Most of us are not Jewish, and when we read the scriptures as Gentiles, we can miss the Jewishness of what's going on. We can forget how Jewish Jesus really is. I'm going to share with you a life hack in that regard. Whenever we may miss the point of a scripture passage where Jesus does something, and the scribes and Pharisees often come to our rescue to point out why, it's, it's why it sticks out. They often point out questions that we should be asking. And they do it here in verse 6 and 7. They internally ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? It's a fair question. They're not wrong. Only God can declare a sin officially forgiven, declare the trespass complete and over. Jesus is speaking for God here, which is why they inwardly think he's blaspheming and saying something on God's behalf that isn't true or about God that isn't true. God's character is sacred. It's a terrible crime to besmirch it. And while we today here would decry and speak out against a recognized blasphemy, 2,000 years ago, they wouldn't let that stand. They'd throw you off a cliff. They'd stone you. They'd tear you to pieces if there's enough of them to do it. They would. And when word gets out that Jesus said this, you might be in trouble. So let's touch briefly on how the scribes here think these things. Let's just mention it. That Jesus ascertains their thoughts as if he heard them say it out loud. Did you know Jesus knows your thoughts? I realize that's another stupid question because, of course, you knew that. And we don't always like to think about it, do we? I've never heard of someone saying, Jesus can read my thoughts? Great! No one says that. Quite the opposite, actually. No one really likes the idea of our internal thoughts being known. More interesting, perhaps more troubling to the scribes, is Jesus' response in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, keyword here, authority, on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. The man gets up and walks out. This is more than a rhetorical question. To our Western Gentile minds and thinking, this might feel simply rhetorical. Of course, it's easier to declare something we couldn't sense is now gone. Your sins are forgiven. Of course, of course that's easier to say. So let's now recall what we were discussing earlier that the Jewish mindset about sickness and visible affliction and its association with sin. This man's paralysis is a tangible, visible indication of his sin to, to the people around him. Not only has Jesus declared his sins are forgiven, but to make sure that's understood, he restores the man by fully getting rid of the physical signs that previously suggested sin was a problem. This point, I don't think, was lost on the audience at the time. The last verse in our text, verse 12, seems to indicate this. People witness this miracle of healing and say, we never saw anything like this. Are they talking about the actual physical healing here? Maybe. Maybe, but I doubt it. Jesus is well established at this time as a healer, and in desperation, some people broke into the house to get to him. Crowds have become a nuisance. He's good at what he does. So this is why, in my opinion, which it might be wrong, I might be wrong, but I don't think they're talking about the physical healing. They say, we never saw anything like this. And healings have been witnessed before numerous times to say they haven't seen a miraculous healing at this point simply isn't true. So what else are they talking about? The priority of Jesus, forgiveness of sins. 2,000 years ago, the most remarkable healer ever born walked the earth. He could touch someone and they'd be healed. He could speak to someone and they'd be healed. He could say the word as someone lies dying miles away and they'd be healed. That is remarkable power. History will never again witness something like that. But here's the question. Who cares? Who cares? It was 2,000 years ago. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help you. If that is all Jesus did was be an incredible healer, the most that does for us is give us the pleasant thought that, wow, if he was here now, I wouldn't hurt. That'd be nice. That's all it would be good for, like reading in a story how someone else got rich. Well, that'd be nice. Recall my opening illustration with statistics from the wonderful game of football. I know, it wasn't great, but consider the best numbers in the universe don't matter at all if you don't win the game. Thankfully, healing was not Jesus' priority. He was not padding his stats. Don't misunderstand me. Healing is good, and it glorifies God, and health enables us to better serve God. But Jesus did healings to bring glory to God or to make a point to his audience about a teaching or his own nature. It was secondary to his first priority, which is the forgiveness of sins. And that priority of Jesus is what still applies to us today and why we talk about the same consistent theme every Sunday. If your sins have been bothering you, that's actually good. The Spirit is working in you. And that same Spirit also reminds us that while we have sins, Jesus' work is what forgives them. 
For that is why we came, he came and lived and taught and died and resurrected. Amen.